0: Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our Warning Premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. There are so many things to be said about Ron DeSantis' announcement and propaganda event with billionaire David Sachs. And one of the richest men in the world, Elon Musk, along with a host of other right-wingers on Twitter Spaces. Apparently, Twitter Spaces is like AM radio that doesn't work. Ron DeSantis is 42 years old, but he seems to have an embrace of technology when judged against the disaster of this evening's event, like a 92-year-old. At any rate, Tonight's debacle will long endure as the most inept announcement in the history of the modern era of presidential politics. There's something wrong with Ron DeSantis with regards to how he views the role of a presidential candidate. Ron DeSantis doesn't seem to be interested in interacting with people. There's something old school, and by old school, I mean, old-school papal, as in 12th century, where you never saw the Pope. It reminds me of Emperor Hirohito during the last days of World War II. The Japanese people had never, ever seen Hirohito. They revered the emperor as a god. They had never heard his voice until they heard it for the first time on radio announcing the surrender of the Japanese Empire. It seems that Ron DeSantis doesn't want the American people very much to interact with him. Watch this scene. It's really extraordinary. Here's a governor of Florida, a presidential candidate. He interacts with a voter and he wipes snot all over him. This announcement video by Ron DeSantis that prefaced the Elon Musk propaganda event is extremely peculiar. Ron DeSantis shows the American people his back. It's a sign of disrespect, but it tells us something about him. It tells us how the people around him think about him. His wife, Casey, compared him to the big guy, God, in this ludicrous ad. And now Ron DeSantis is seen walking away from us towards the American flag, around a corner, and onto a stage, always alone, away, segregated from real people. It is an odd impulse for a politician. He seems repelled by the people, like no politician on the national stage since Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was able to take political power because he was a great politician. He understood, after having lost a presidential race, how to use the medium of his era in his day to his advantage by the time his comeback was underway in 1968. Ron DeSantis doesn't seem to understand the technology of his day, but there he was with Elon Musk, the richest man in the world on any given day, and David Sachs, a lesser billionaire. David Sachs introduced him and began with an opening that sounded like the Unabomber Manifesto. It was truly extraordinary. And then on it went. A couple of hangers-on who got minor roles in the propaganda event praised Elon Musk. They thanked him. They thanked him for buying Twitter. They thanked him for fighting against the conspiracies that are apparently everywhere inside the mainstream media. For much of the program, it played out like a grievance session on AM morning radio. A grieved host talking about the conspiracies piling up and mounting against them. And on and on and on it went. Ron DeSantis was asked directly about Disney and his fight with them. Ron DeSantis dissembled, to say the least. The truth of the matter is, Ron DeSantis didn't like Disney criticizing Ron DeSantis' legislation, and he acted with retaliation. He punished a dissenting voice. He abused the power of his office by trying to coerce silence from a company that has every right to speak out. What he did was authoritarian, un-American, and completely oppositional to the ethics and the ethos of conservative ideology that says government has no business telling the shareholder or telling a private sector business what it can and cannot do. But at the heart of this event was something more sinister. Elon Musk is the richest person in the world. And what he did was debut his preferred presidential candidate on his commercial platform, the malfunctioning Twitter spaces, which appears to be a version of AM radio, only one that doesn't work properly. Maybe it's like early radio from the very, very early days. At any rate, it assembled a fairly meager audience compared to what Ron DeSantis would have drawn on television, and engage Ron DeSantis in a discussion of their conspiracy theories and pet projects. I guess the question is, what does David Sachs and Elon Musk get out of Ron DeSantis? This is a terrible look for Ron DeSantis. It makes him look weak and owned, controlled and bought and small and invisible. There's another problem with Ron DeSantis' campaign, and it's this. It makes no sense whatsoever. He said at the beginning that the Republican Party was on a losing streak. Indeed, it is. Been on a losing streak 2018, 2020, 2022. I'll tell you a secret. Do you know who lost? Donald Trump lost. You know who will never, ever say that out loud? Ron DeSantis. He won't say that Donald Trump lost. But he's running saying... Republicans have lost and they need a winner. Trump is running saying that he won and didn't lose. See how it works? It makes no sense. Ron DeSantis's campaign will tear itself apart before it even begins. This event tonight was ludicrous. It was a failure at an epic level. It was a force. It was exactly what you would expect from an Elon Musk production, getting involved in a presidential campaign a week or so after overt articulations of anti-Semitism with his attacks on George Soros. Elon Musk has every right to do whatever it is he wants to do in the United States. It's a free country, but he's no free speech advocate, and Elon Musk doesn't care much about the future of the United States. He cares about the future of Elon Musk. That's what he cares about. And you saw it play out tonight as all those sycophants praised him, including Ron DeSantis. It's an unfortunate aspect of this moment of politics that the presidential candidate should be tattooed or be wearing the jerseys of the billionaires that sponsor them. We had one of the richest men in the world Larry Ellison in the front row for Tim Scott. He's apparently good for $100 million, maybe more. You have Steve Cohen, the billionaire owner of the New York Mets. He's all in for Chris Christie. And for Ron DeSantis, he's got Elon Musk, the richest man in the world. And what they did tonight was put on a show. It wasn't about accountability or freedom. The American people didn't even get to see him. All they heard were the rehearsed and prescribed questions and answers, rehearsed for days, no doubt, between a couple of billionaires talking about their associations, their whims and their pet projects. It was an appalling spectacle. And it's one that's not going to work for Ron DeSantis in the Republican primaries ahead. Ron DeSantis will fade quickly. Tim Scott will soon be the ascendant candidate in the Republican field, moving into second place. One thing is clear after watching Ron DeSantis tonight. In the history of presidential campaigns, of which there have been many, and many, many failures, and many failures that became laughingstocks, Ron DeSantis is apparently trying for a league of his own. This was a ludicrous launch for a ludicrous campaign that no doubt will get worse by the day. Really thrilled today to be joined by an excellent member of Congress. It's lazy to say that all of Congress is rotten. That's a cynical way to look at it. There are some exemplary members of Congress that you can trust that tell you the truth, that are smart, and in fact, or precisely the type of people by personality, disposition, temperament, experience, judgment, probity, and wisdom that you want sitting in a chamber of 435 members in a nation of 330 million people doing the nation's business. There are not enough serious people in the United States Congress, but that's not an issue with the person we're lucky enough to be joined by today, uh, Congressman Dan Goldman, welcome.
1: Thanks, Steve. Very nice introduction and appreciate you saying all that.
0: So when I think about what's happening in this moment, uh, the word that pops across my frontal lobe is careening, uh, careening towards uh, an unnecessary economic crisis, uh, default. And I wanted to ask you, sitting there, what does it look like from Washington? What What is it that you are witnessing, seeing? How can you explain it to people that are out there trying to get a handle on what's happening? And explain, if you would, how much worse and more dire this is going to get day by day as the, as the line gets closer and closer to a national default.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's it is one of the difficult things about this situation is it's hard to explain in thirty second sound bites as you might get on cable news television, uh, which is why a you know a podcast like this actually is the right forum because essentially uh, uh, we have um, committed to spending in the past or spending and cuts in the past. Um, In every administration, every law, there's a uh, there's a financial cost to it um, that ultimately has to be paid for. And the way that the United States pays for it is we essentially sell our bonds in our own uh, treasury treasury bonds, which are very common, and we issue those bonds to other countries or other individuals. Um, And we end up having to take we end up having to pay interest on those those bonds that accrues over time and that ultimately can, if we do not generate as much tax revenue or other revenues, ultimately lead to a deficit. And so we have a very high deficit of around thirty one trillion dollars. That is a result of of many things, uh, including legislation. Decades ago, including recent legislation and including uh, tax cuts and other types of uh, revenue cutting legislation, including the 2017 Trump tax cuts that increased our deficit by $2 trillion and gave the benefits, 87% of the benefits, to the wealthiest 1%. So this has accrued over time. A hundred years ago, 150 years ago, Congress passed a law saying that in order to increase our debt ceiling so that we can pay our debts, we need a, we need a bill. We need a law that allows us to do that. And over time, we have had to consistently do that as our deficit has gotten bigger. and more recently, as inflation has risen, more, uh, interest rates have gone up, and so our debt costs more to pay. And what ultimately is going on right now is that we need to lift our debt ceiling in order to pay our past debts. It has nothing to do with future spending. It has nothing to do with future revenue, with cuts or whatever we decide we're going to do next year or the year after. Everything related to the debt ceiling is, is retrospective. We're looking backwards and we're paying things we've already committed to. During the Trump administration, Congress raised the debt ceiling without any preconditions three times uh, in order to pay the debts, including on those tax cuts, which were the most significant driver of the deficit during the Trump administration. So now we are up against that debt ceiling and we need to pass another law that increases the debt ceiling from the $31.4 trillion where it is in order to continue to pay our debts. This is not the normal budget process. This is not when we do our appropriations process and spending. But what the House Republicans are doing is they are making a, uh, their agreement to raise our debt limit contingent on spending cuts in a wide variety of areas and in undoing some of the past legislation. Now, this is out and out extortion. Because they would never, ever be able to pass any of the things they are demanding right now through in the regular order of congressional business, the regular budgetary process. It would never get through the Senate, and it would never get signed by the president. But what they are doing is they are holding out on the essential need to raise our debt ceiling so we can pay our past debts um, in order to hold the American people hostage um, and, and potentially lead to calamitous financial ruin. Um, I want to key off a couple of words that you used uh,
0: that I don't think you use lightly, being that you were a federal prosecutor uh, who prosecuted Genovese family mobsters, among uh, uh, amongst others, extortion, hostage. Right that this is an act of extortion. that's how you see it I do and um, and, and, and the I country mean, and the country's been is being taken hostage by by this and and I agree with it. I want to talk about a concept very quickly here, which is these words: the full faith and credit of the United States of America, and what that means now, every leader or set of leaders from the beginning of the country across both political parties has had a basic understanding of the concept that even if they were deficit and debt spenders, and certainly all of our recent presidents have been up until Trump, and then Trump's spending was next level, that they're that they're threatening to default on. But um, the idea that you would not pay, the payments on the debt, is is an extraordinary departure uh, from history in this country.
1: You're exactly right, Steve. And and we saw in 2011, the Republicans used the same playbook uh, against President Obama. And what happened was even before we uh, reached the point of default, our bond ratings went down. Now, the United States Treasury and bonds in the United States uh, government are traditionally considered to be the most reliable investment that anyone in the world can make. And our entire economy is predicated on that full faith and credit in our Treasury Department and in knowing and everyone around the world knowing that the U.S. is the the economic leader around the world. Our bonds are as, as pristine and prime as any in the world. And that has a massive sprawling effect on the global economy. When Moody's reduced the rating of our bonds in 2011, there was a shockwave through the economy. And that was before we even defaulted the the ruin that will come if we default on our our debts will have tremendous consequence there are estimates independent estimates that that 8 million americans will lose their jobs um they will we will not be able to pay uh, our our debts which will raise interest rates raise loan rates raise all sorts of rates make everything much more expensive it will devastate a lot of businesses that uh, or uh, operate on debt, uh, it will have a catastrophic impact on not only the U.S. economy, but the global economy because so much is spent on that. And the Republicans know that. And they know that the impact of this will be devastating. And Representative Matt Gates from Florida said the quiet part out loud yesterday to the media. And when he said, why would we negotiate with our hostage so, this is not just me saying that they are holding the American people hostage by way of the Democrats and the President. This is them saying that because they know that Democrats generally will make sure that this calamitous ruin of a economic default of a default on our debts does not happen. And they believe that President Biden will cave because he does not want that to happen to the american people they take no responsibility for their role in not only increasing our deficit and causing all these debts but in the requirement and the duty that they have to pay those debts so let me let me just be clear and
0: and and align myself in total agreement with you that you know this issue is an appalling act of reckless irresponsible political conduct by an extremist House Republican majority that is ransoming the economic prosperity of the nation uh, for a hobby project that is deeply, deeply hypocritical when you look at the fact that there were no objections against the $8 trillion of Trump debt and across three increases of the of the debt ceiling. Now, I want to talk about the politics of this and and ask you if you're frustrated at, at all. And so, at the at the beginning of the conversation, let, let me say when it, when I think back over my political career in the White House, you know, as a senior aide uh, to leadership in Congress, to a California governor, you know, other jobs. I've always proceeded from a point of view that language is important. And so never means fucking never. And sometimes means sometimes. And you need to draw a line. Now, I remember coming to California where I first met Kevin McCarthy uh, in very early 2006. Uh, I left the White House to take over Arnold Schwarzenegger's campaign. And it wasn't as if Congress was at a high watermark in early 2006, but I, but I distinctly remember, and a lot of these guys are now in Congress from, from California, but they were all in the legislature, Tom McClintock uh, uh, being another one. I remember going to my first caucus meeting. I said, holy shit. I said, these guys make the Congress look like Churchill's war cabinet. It was just it was just unbelievable, right? So so watching Kevin McCarthy over many years, this is somebody who just two weeks ago Joe Biden said, "I think Kevin McCarthy is an honorable guy that you can negotiate in good faith with." I think that's absurd on its on its face, but but secondarily um, to that, President said, and the Democratic position was. We will not negotiate on this issue. We will not link it to cuts in future spending. We will not let you ransom the country. And there you have Kevin McCarthy now sitting in the Oval Office opposite the president in the opposing head of state chair, right? One of the most exalted pictures, right, that you can have in terms of, you know, you want a picture that. Kevin McCarthy is going to hang on his wall and exalt himself in, and you know, raise his stature and image. It's it's that picture. So so now, right? The American people care about spending. Your moderate Republicans, such that there are in the actual country, not in the Congress, are the most fiscally conservative people in the room. The debt at $32 trillion is something that a lot of us are concerned about, believe that both parties are big spending parties, are sympathetic to we have to cut spending. This is a runaway train. And now Kevin McCarthy, of all people, has snookered the president into a direct negotiation on this and is actually on the right side of the cut issue. Are you worried about an unfolding political disaster here, um as we come into the summer that the that the White House has lost control of the political argument, that it's a mistake to have open direct negotiations and come off that line with uh with the White House. And I'll just say I'm very worried about it. And over my dead body, right, if I was sitting there in the White House in the chief of staff's office, would I would I have, you know, signed off on these negotiations. You know, going forward, it's a terrible, terrible idea in my book.
1: I, I hear you. I I do think that um, I I think part of the problem that you're recognizing is once you open up the gate to negotiations, there's not an obvious endpoint. And what what I think you have hit the nail on the head about is. One of the problems that we've run into with this Donald Trump-controlled Republican Party is we no longer can have faith that our leaders actually care about the interests of the country as opposed to their own personal interests. And no matter what you want to say about George W. Bush, and I disagreed with many of his policies, I never once questioned his fidelity to the Constitution and his fidelity to our country now maybe you know some of the uh, interrogation tactics, you know we can disagree on some of that issues, but he was doing that, whatever he was doing, in furtherance of the country's interests and so that is the Republican party that President Biden knows, and I think he is desperately hoping that there are some remnants of that Republican Party left. I'm I've not seen it in this House Republican leader. I, I wanna, I wanna, I
0: wanna, I wanna stop you there and ask you about that. And I and I do think that you are precisely correct in analyzing that. And I think it is not a lonely view amongst many members of Congress, many people in Washington, DC and I guess the question I would ask is, what do you attribute it to after eight years? Um, and Trump has really now been on the national stage with the birther nonsense and everything else for, for a decade. What, what more does anybody need to see to understand that these people mean exactly what it is that they say they mean? What do you think the disconnect is?
1: So uh, this is uh, something I thought a lot about um, because the the influence that Donald Trump continues to have over the Republican Party is shocking to me. Now, I led the first impeachment investigation and it was I think pretty clear from what we demonstrated and proved that he abused the power of his office to use his official authority for his personal gain. But what he did in withholding $400 million of military assistance at that time seems quaint compared to what he has done since. And when you see what he has done uh, post-2020 election, trying to overturn the election, inciting a violent insurrection... And you still have so many members of his party and the, the leadership and control of the House Republicans um, who are still kissing his ring. It is shocking. So you ask yourself why? I think the, there are a lot of smart people who have a lot of reasons. My, my brief take on it is that Donald Trump expanded the base of the party to a number of voters who were disengaged, who were not voters, who were not part of this process. And they only got engaged in the political process because of him. And they are un, you know, unbreakable in their support of him. That base has, I think, expanded a little bit as the rest of the Republican Party has shrunk. So it is now a disproportionate amount of the base of the Republican Party. And there is simply a cult following of Donald Trump from those people and others that they have infected. And so even if ultimately he only has you know support from 25 or 30 percent of the Republican Party, and I think it's probably more than that at this point, he remains... That's about all you need to win a a, a large, uh, a multi-candidate primary. And so he continues to have control because of the following that he has and the threats that he uses as a wannabe mob boss to threaten to primary anyone who goes against him to threaten to support anyone who doesn't agree uh, to uh, to support anyone opposing someone who doesn't agree with him and essentially he is in true you know republican fashion holding the house republicans hostage to his whims and that's why there's such an outsized influence cuz i have conversations with people in congress behind the scenes quietly they can't stand him and they think he's terrible for the party but they would never speak out and why? they because they are concerned about their own political future and we have seen many times that when you stand up to donald trump if you're in the republican party he will come after you with a far-right extremist primary and in many cases he wins now in the senate he didn't win last time and in some of the you know but in the house he did pretty well and so that is a threat that looms and any rational uh, po- person who's just focused on their re-election is just not going to entertain that kind of, um, uh, you know, that kind of discourse with him. How, how do you feel
0: about the fact that you'll read blind quotes from White House political advisors basically saying, we want Trump? We want Trump through the Republican primary to be the nominee, which really means bringing Trump into the finals. He's one of the major party nominees on the ballot and in position uh, to win an election against someone at the end of the day who will be 82 years old and has an approval level that ranges from high 30s to mid 40s. When I read that, it it, it brings me to the edge of an aneurysm. Um, I, I can't. It's it's so reckless that there's not a word for it. And at the same time, I was I was talking to a group of Democratic friends of mine, all work in politics. I'm the only former Republican in the in the room. I was trying to bring up the case is that there's only really two teams in the league, right? If there if there were 15 teams and and Donald Trump and his MAGA coalition. We're crushing everybody. That says something. But if there's only two teams, and that's the team that you are losing to in this race, that race, it says something. Do you understand what the appeal is? What drives that Trump voter? Do do you get the 40% of the country that doesn't have $400 cash available that that's looking to deliver a fuck you to somebody. And that's what I think Trump is at the end of the day. He's the lowest conceivable bar that's ever been because the only expectation that people have of the guy, of his supporters, is that he's going to say fuck you to someone for them. But do you, do you understand or have a theory on why so many people want that fuck you delivered and, and I think that's exactly what it is. I'm not trying to be gratuitous with with the with the language. It is it, there is a seething anger, certainly stoked by a billion dollar rage and in, in anger industry. But the but the anger is real, no matter how it's how how it's come to be, how justified it is. And, and so I I wanted to ask you about that. And and really hear what you think about as a as a political leader, is someone that I look at with with tremendous promise as a political leader. What, what are we going to do about that?
1: Well, you just you raised two very important issues, um, and just to address the first part of of what you said, because I think this is really important to discuss. Um, I don't think there's any question that Joe Biden's best chance of winning the next election is against Donald Trump. And I think it would be horrible for the country for Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. Um, We need to stamp out this authoritarian, anti-democratic demagogue. Amen. get back to focusing on conversations that are about the country's interest. And that is not what Donald Trump is. And so I am willing to accept that my party has less of a chance to be in the White House in order to make sure that someone as corrupt as uh, both morally and otherwise, someone as uh Narcissistic and focused exclusively on himself, someone who uh, has turned upside down our foreign policy and our broader approach to uh, democracy should not be able to reach anyone in this country, because even if he loses his rhetoric, his views, still are in the blood system of this country, and we need to eliminate that. Someone once said to me, and I think this is a good choice, If would you want Adolf Hitler on the ballot if that meant that you had a better chance of winning? No, because the chance that he would become the president is too great a risk, whatever it is. To your second point, you know, this is something that we Democrats need to do a lot more meaningful analysis because i don't think it's as simple as just saying uh they don't the trump supporters just don't know what they're doing that that's that's not fair that's not respectful um and that i don't think that's helpful i think the reality is that there are a lot of people in this country who have felt like and this has increased over time that the government does not work for them. Government works for either themselves or the elite, so to speak, and that they're not at the table for the conversations, that people don't care about them. People are not uh, identifying or interested in what matters to them. And then there's also this feeling among many in our country where they're, they're feeling like they are getting overtaken by external forces that they can't control. And what I think Donald Trump has done very successfully is he's tapped into that disengagement and that disillusionment. And he's provided people with something very different to see as part of our government and a frankness and candor that uh, many might find repulsive and appropriate, but speaks to, I think, a general view of, um, a general view that, you know, we ought to be able to speak our mind a little bit more and that he represents someone who, as you point out, will stand up to the establishment, uh, is not going to... um, cave to special interests or is not just interested in, um, you know, those, those around him. Somehow he has, even though I think he is, but he has convinced people through his populism that he is there for him. And, you know, I, I think there are, there are examples of this throughout history and one that is really worth focusing on is that there was previously an America first movement in the United States. Sure was um, in the 1930s. And it has eerie similarities to what is going on right now. They actually were able to infiltrate Congress. Um, and I think Rachel Maddow's pad- podcast on this called Ultra really was fantastic. But this is a authoritarian playbook that he is running. And it is it can be and historically has been very effective. And part of what we need to do is we need to reach out to many of these disillusioned folks and talk about policies, ideas, understand what their concerns are, and directly address them. And that's something that we, we have talked a lot about here in Congress. You know, the story is documented in the Ken Burns documentary about the Holocaust,
0: but you know Charles Lindbergh was Franklin Roosevelt's prin- principal antagonist. Through 1939, 1940, the, the movement came within one vote in Congress of, of upending the draft, of canceling the, the draft. country would have been horribly unprepared uh, for the war that was certainly coming. Uh, Madison Square Garden, as you know, uh, filled to the rafters uh, with swastika-laden George Washington banners, the, the German-American boons. Uh, you have George Wallace in 1972, 1976. So this strain has always been there, and it it is asserting itself, manifesting itself. I I have said and predicted that I think that that Tim Scott is going to be uh, soaring past Ron DeSantis into the second seed position, uh, probably by July 4th. Uh, but we'll we'll see how that goes. I just I wanted to ask you real quickly about George Santos, um, fellow New York member member of Congress. What what is the reaction to his presence in the chamber? I I imagine, knowing your your background, that that seeing him must raise your blood pressure significantly, to to say to say the least. And I'm I'm curious. Behind the scenes. What what do people say about him? What do what do your Republican colleagues say about him? Are they ashamed? Are they embarrassed? Are they disgusted? What 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 is the hesitation to expel the guy? Is there is there is it is it the collapse of any standard whatsoever in this in this era? What
1: yeah, exactly what I said. Power is all that matters. To this Republican Party. It is the only thing that matters. And when you see them willing to protect George Santos in order to preserve an extra Republican vote in a very narrow majority that they have, it tells you everything you need to know. This is a guy who not only lied about his resume, his background, his employment, um, his, his, you know, a, a variety of things. And now has been charged for lying on his campaign finance disclosures. And I think there will be more that comes out about his campaign finances um, that is ripe for criminal prosecution. But he used lies about 9-11, about the Holocaust, about the Pulse nightclub shooting, which is the worst LGBTQ mass shooting in, in our history. He is a depraved individual who literally took three of the most tragic events in the last hundred years and used them for his, lied about them for his personal benefit, so he could deceive his voters and get into Congress and walk the halls. And it is, whether it's criminal or not, it is despicable and depraved. And it burns me up as someone who does really care about restoring The integrity to Congress and the reputation of Congress, because we do need to get back to being a body that focuses on the people rather than on the individuals who may be here or our special interests and supporters. And George Santos walking the same halls that I walk and voting on the same bills that I walk is offends me. And I will say this, and this is what is the disconnect: Um, the Republicans I speak to. I think they are ashamed that George Santos is there. The problem is their shame is not enough to motivate them to do anything, and that is the disconnect. Um, many of my Republican colleagues, you know, routinely make jokes about you know George Santos was the first one who uh, arrived on the moon, or you know all sorts of uh, mocking of of his ridiculous lies. And but they're they're embarrassed, but they're just not going to do anything because power is more important perfect spot to leave it. Thank you very much, congressman Thanks, Steve. really good to see you. Good to see you. take care. hey, thank you